The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Exodus 25, verses 1 through 9. The Lord spoke to Moses, Tell the Israelites to take an offering for me. You are to take my offering from everyone who is willing to give. This is the offering you are to receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. Fine linen and goat hair, ram skins dyed red and fine leather, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. And onyx along with other gemstones for mounting on the ephod and breastpiece. They are to make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. You must make it according to all that I show you the pattern of the tabernacle, as well as the pattern of all its furnishings. This is the word of the Lord. We'll turn there if you have a copy of God's word or your phone to Exodus 25. And I'll read actually a little bit of Exodus 24 in just a second. Let me say uh, what a privilege to be here. Thank you for that kind introduction. Uh, I am one of four boys and I'm always uh, encouraged to be reminded that I was the best athlete of the four. Just wish they had been here to hear that. also, uh, just it's a, it's a joy to be at this church again. I think I was here in January in a much different place, a middle school, and it's just amazing to see what the Lord's doing. Thankful for your partnership in the gospel through Pillar and planting churches. Thankful for Josh. He's become a really good friend in the work we're doing with Christ Center and Clear. Uh, and just it's a joy and a privilege to be here on your second Sunday in this building. I, I do want to talk about, you know, in my role at Pillar, I, I certainly want to encourage you to discipleship, to raising up leaders, to evangelism, to the starting and strengthening of churches here and everywhere. But I, I want to, as I preach this morning, I want to give a, a big part of my emphasis to who you are in Christ before then moving to what I hope that will mean for your life and mean for the ministry of this church. So I want to spend a good bit of time thinking about things that are absolutely true about us And then think about because these things are true about us, what that should produce in us. And I think Exodus chapter 25 is a good place for us to turn our attention. In this narrative that's that's described by this this huge thing, this this tabernacle that, that God has the Israelites make. And it's not because I think this new building is somehow analogous to the, to the tabernacle, but because I think this narrative has some very helpful reminders in this new season you guys find yourself in. In Exodus, you have this amazing thing happening with Israel, right? You have this distinct people, a people who have been called out of darkness into light through their father Abraham, who have been delivered from slavery through the prophet Moses, who have covenanted with God at Mount Sinai so that they would reflect him and his ways in the world. And now he's having them construct this tabernacle, which would be a a place that would remind them of his sovereignty and his holiness, but also his mercy and grace. It would be a reminder of the special love that he has for the people of Israel and the fact that he is with them, that he is present among his people. And this morning, I want to focus in, not necessarily on the blessings of this new building, even though I think they are many, but on the presence of God and what that means for those of us who are his. And then in light of what that means for our identity, what that should then produce in us. And I think that's an appropriate thing for this new season. But I also think as we think about the tabernacling presence of God, it's fitting for the Advent season. So I'm going to turn our attention there. I'm going to read just a tiny bit of the context, and then I'm going to again uh, pray and ask for God's help. And I want you to be reminded as I turn our attention to the scriptures of what Paul tells the church at Corinth, 
that these very words, these things have been written down for us upon whom the ends of the ages has come. We give our attention now and the prophet Moses writes this as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit. And Moses took the blood, this is chapter 24 and verse 8. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then verse 15. Then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. Father, I pray that we would come before your word now like we would come to a table hungry. Father, that, that we would come before your word ready for us to receive the bread of life. Father, we know in your words are the words of life. So Father, now I pray that you would help me preach with confidence in your word for the sake of your saints, for the sake of the lost, but ultimately, Father, for the glory of your name. Father, by your kindness now, would you allow for your word to speed ahead and be honored among this people and then through this people? Would you make us like Christ in every way? May we see him and by seeing him be made like him. Father, now would you sanctify us in the truth? We know your word is truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the presence of a parent can mean a lot for a child, right? Dads and moms can bring comfort. They can bring confidence by their presence. I know growing up, if I was scared at night, I, you know, if my dad would just come in the room. I would no longer be scared. You know, when I was playing sports, if I lost a big game, I was always depressed and down. If I could just have my dad be around and just share a few words, I would be calm. Now, thankfully, given the stellar athlete you've heard that I was, that didn't happen all the time all that much. But I still remember even the last time I played basketball at Murray State. I remember the last time I played, uh, we played Illinois in the NCAA tournament. We lost, and I knew very unlikely that a 5'10", moderately athletic white guy was getting drafted into the NBA. So I knew that was the end, and I just wanted to hear my dad's voice, even as a 22-year-old. But you know, there are some kids who grow up who don't have the sort of parents that I did. I, I know of a nine-year-old who, when she was nine, was taken out of her parents' home. She was put into a children's home. And they're in that children's home every single Sunday would be Parents Sunday, where parents could come and see their kids. And every single week, she would call her dad and say, hey, dad, can, am I going to see you on Sunday? And he'd say, of course, babe, I'm going to come see you on Sunday. And then every single Sunday, she would get dressed up in her nicest clothes. And she would wait on a porch for a dad who never came. The passage in front of us this morning is a reminder that the people of God have an altogether different kind of father. We have a heavenly father who by his presence reminds us that he is there and that we are his. However, God's comforting and confidence producing presence is complicated. It raises what may be the most important question we should ever ask. It is a question that most of us don't even know to ask. And that is simply this, how can a holy God be a father to sinners? Or maybe specifically for this text, how can a holy God dwell in the midst of a sinful people? And we're going to see in Exodus 25 and following an answer to that question. In fact, that's going to be my main idea this morning. And it's simply this. Through the tabernacle, God provides a means to dwell in the midst of a sinful people. 
We're going to see this throughout. Now, here's the context, and I read just a little bit of it. The section begins with Moses on the mountain hearing from God, but it's set against the backdrop of what's going to happen in Exodus chapter 32 with the scene that has the golden calf. It's likely to draw the reader's attention to this big contrast, the contrast of God's gracious act of dwelling among his people set against their gross sin of idolatry with this golden image that they made themselves. Now, after he highlights how this structure will be made, the materials that will be used, it was read just a minute ago. It's interesting, right? It's, it's much different than this building. Your elders had no need of your ram skins and goat skins in order to build this building. Guest preachers, though, will take whatever pig and cow meat you want to give them as a reward and as a tribute. But that brings us to verse 8 and 9, which are the key verses in the whole pericope. And, and those are the last two verses that she read. I'll read them again. And here's simply what it says. Moses writes, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst is exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture. So shall you make it. This whole structure, not just the Holy of Holies, but this whole structure will be a sanctuary for God to dwell in their midst. That's the purpose of this structure, that God would live among his people. This would be the place where he meets with them, where he speaks to them, where he reminds them, where he sanctifies them. And then verse 9 says that the making of this tent has to be specific. They have to do it exactly as he shows them. This tent will house the creator God. And so it must be constructed on his terms and not on their terms. And I think that's vital for two reasons. I think it's important for us as Christians today as we think about our own worship. This would be, they would do it exactly as he said so that it would demonstrate their obedience. Again, this is set against the backdrop of their disobedience that's about to come. But number two, and I think this is most important for our purposes this morning, number two, it would highlight just how careful things must be done and prepared for a holy God to dwell in the midst of a sinful people. We will see the detail of it. And beginning in verse 10, we start to see the different elements of the tabernacle. And I'm going to go pretty quickly through uh, most of the pieces of furniture. Jason Redberg uh, told me that I covered a lot of information. It's always great to have a Barnabas encourage you after your first sermon but absorb the information as best you can to quote Dwight Schrute. The first piece in the tabernacle is the Ark of the Covenant. And it's the most important one. And if you've grown up in the church, you likely know of the Ark of the Covenant. Or if you watched Indiana Jones, you know of the Ark of the Covenant. With the Ark, I'm going to read every single verse that's talking about the Ark. And I'm not going to do that with every piece just so we can cover the ground we need. But I want you to notice the, the magnificent, even minute detail. And then I would take time to read the verses about the other pieces of furniture you're going to see because every single one of them are detailed. Again, this magnificent, specific, minute detail to every piece of furniture that's going to go into the tabernacle. Now, here's what Moses writes in verse 10 of chapter 25. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside you shall overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on the four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put the poles into the rings of the side of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. 
You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherubim on the one end and one cherub on the other. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces to one another toward the mercy seat shall, they face, shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put in the mercy, the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you will put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel." This is the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Testimony, and it is to be the Lord's throne. It's where he will sit and where he will meet with and speak to Moses. This will be the only piece of furniture that will be in the most inner part of the tabernacle, that which we know as the Holy of Holies. The presence of God, though everywhere, will dwell specifically strong in this one spot when he descends. And here you see, just with the mention of gold alone, his holiness will be on full display. As on top of the mercy seat, you will have these two cherubim, these two angels facing each other with their faces bowed toward this atonement seat. These tremendous angels bowing, showing their reverence for Yahweh. It's important to remember because our culture messes up what angels actually are. It's important for us to remember when we come to the biblical text, angels are not precious moments figurines. Angels are certainly not Cupid-like figures in diapers with wings eating grapes on a cloud. Now, most of the time when they show up, they scare the people that they show up to. They are warriors. In Genesis chapter 3, they protect Eden with flaming swords. But just think about this. These mighty creatures who terrify, yet when they're in the presence of God, they must bow. That's how holy our God is. These incredible warriors must bow in his presence. And he says here on this mercy seat is where he will meet with the people and speak to them again. And we learn something here that his presence is merciful. We learn that through the ark because Leviticus 16 tells us his mercy will be revealed here on the day of, the, of atonement. When the high priest will make atonement, listen to this, he will make atonement for whatever sins the people had committed, any and all of them by the high priest sprinkling the blood of the substitutionary sacrifice on the mercy seat that covered the ark. It's this, it's this top with these two angels and he would spread blood on top of it between the two angels. And it's something important for us to see, even in the Old Covenant, how God relates to his people. Think about what's happening here symbolically. The holiness of God and the mercy of God meet here as symbolically. As the Lord descends upon the mercy seat, the first thing that God would see would not be the law inside of the ark that the people had broken. Instead, it would be the blood that had forgiven them of their sins since it had been applied. It is important for us to know it's striking. God relates to us first and foremost, not as sinners, but he relates to us by our salvation. He is our holy God, and yet he is also our merciful redeemer. Be good to name a church after that. Second piece of furniture, the table of the bread of presence. God's presence means provision. Look at verse 23. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit's its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. Then down in verse 30, you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. We have here now three of the pieces of furniture that will be in the holy place. So the place that's right outside the holy of holies. And we're going to see later that they're to put 12 pieces of bread on this 
table. It's to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And then they're going to put a lampstand. We're going to see next that's going to be shining light onto the bread. It's a reminder of God's illuminating presence, but also his provision that he is a God who provides for, nourishes, and sustains his people. The bread that's put on the table of presence is not for God. God has no need of food. It is for the priest. Later they will be told to eat this bread as God perpetually reminds them and his people that he provides our daily bread. I pray that we see that and feel that every time God takes care of our most basic necessities. We see food on the table. We should remember he cares for the sparrow. He takes care of us. And next we move to the golden lampstand and we see God's presence is demonstrated in light. Look at verse 31. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. And it's interesting. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stems, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. There shall be six branches going out of the sides. Three branches of the lampstand on one side of it and three branches of the lampstand on the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch. Three cups with like almond blossoms with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand, then look at verse 37. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamp shall give light, shall be set up so that it'll give light on the space in front of it. It's very interesting. This is the lampstand or what is called the menorah, right? And it's to light up the bread of presence, and it, it's made to look, what's fascinating about it is made to look like a budding tree. And it's to have seven lamps on it, seven lights on the seven different stems. And that is because the number seven in Scripture is meant to portray the, the, the perfection or completeness. Thus reminding us, God is perfect light. He is the one who in the midst of the darkness can say, let there be light and there is light. But it's also a sign that he is with us and lights our paths in ways of righteousness. Throughout the Scriptures, his light is a sign that he is with you. In fact, it's very interesting. In Revelation... When God wants to tell the churches his presence might depart from them because of their sin and disobedience, the way he tells them that he may remove his presence from them is he simply says this, I will take your lampstand from you. But it's also fascinating as I've tried to make clear, this candle looks like a budding tree. Some commentators even argue it's meant to represent the tree of life from Eden. Once again, where God communes with his people is a tree that gives life. For indeed, our our Father can simply speak and light comes from darkness and he can simply speak and life comes from death. Which then moves to the entire tabernacle structure. And here we learn God's presence belongs in the middle or in the center of his people. Look at chapter 26. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen, blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. All the curtains shall be the same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. You shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the outermost curtain in the second set. Fifty loops shall you make on the one curtain. Fifty loops shall you make on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loops shall be opposite one another and you shall make fifty clasps of gold and couple the curtains one to the other with the clasps so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. All right, so what's going on here? There's a lot here, but God is detailing for us how to build the curtains that'll make up this whole tabernacle structure. Interestingly, the cherubim are woven in. These angels are woven into the curtain. It's a sign that this is to be a guarded place. 
God's presence is once again being protected from sinners. I made allusion to it a minute ago, but this is what Moses writes in Genesis chapter 3. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This would likely remind the people, as they saw these angels on the curtains, it would remind the people of paradise lost. Of now, though he is, he is starting to show them that he will dwell with them again, that he will be in the middle of them, and yet access to him will be guarded, unlike how it was in Eden. And then look at the most important curtain. We see this in verse 31. And it says this, you shall make a veil. It will be blue and purple and scarlet yarns, fine twined linen. It should be made with cherubim, again, worked into it. You shall hang it on the four pillars of acacia, overlaid with gold, with the hooks of gold and the four bases of silver. You shall hang the veil from the clasp, and then you are to bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil, and the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark, so the top on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place, and then you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table. And you shall put the table on the north side. These curtains and particularly this veil are constructed to protect people from the presence of God. It's interesting. There are three zones or divisions in the tabernacle. Each of them have curtains blocking the way. But you have the, out, the, the most outer place or the courtyard. You have then the holy place. And then on the very inside of the holy place you have the most holy place. The final separation being this veil blocking the holy place from the most holy place. And this is the place where God would eventually meet with his servants, his high priest, just once a year. And again, there's meticulous detail here, right? This, this idea of gold and fine linen, purple and blue and scarlet. And yet all of this meticulous detail and the, particularly the cherubim embroidered into the veil is a reminder of the great precautions that are necessary, the precautions that are to be undertaken for sinful men to come into the presence of a holy God. You know, sometimes things like curtains are actually a sign of love. I got married later in life. And so for a long time, I was a bachelor and I lived in this neighborhood that I had this massive sliding glass door and I never put up any curtains or blinds to block it. My roommates that lived with me for time were terrified by it. I was like, who cares? The problem was that meant that every single time somebody walked by, they would see whatever disaster was going on in that bachelor's living room. Plates sitting there, clothes on the floor, all kinds of stuff. It would have been a sign of love to not just give unhindered access and certainly not unhindered sight into my living room. It would have been a kind thing to do to put some curtains up. Oh, brothers and sisters, in a much more needed and gracious and merciful way. These curtains are there so that God is not allowing unhindered access and unhindered sight into the most holy dwelling place. Because for now, his holiness and all of his glory must be veiled. And it must be accessible only one time a year. I've made allusions along the way, but you see the parallels between the tabernacle and Eden. And they're striking. There are six of them with the help of some commentators I put together. But it's important because Eden and the tabernacle are both places where God would commune with his people. You first see there are seven speaking acts in both in Genesis and God said in Exodus, the Lord spoke to Moses. In both places, God would dwell in the midst of his people in Genesis in the cool of the day. Here he would do so above the mercy seat. Both had the, the quality of creation and God says of creation, it is very good. God says of this, it is a blessed place. Both narratives end with a Sabbath. Both narratives will be followed by a fall, the golden calf here. 
Both had cherubim guarding access at the east entrance. Here in the tabernacle, in a way, the cherubim are now welcoming people back into Eden, but they're doing it guardedly so. And as we will see, they are only doing it through blood. So what's the point? Why draw the parallel? The point is we get a glimpse of Eden here. We get a glimpse of where the divine and human meet, where God dwells with his people. And yes, it's a glimpse of a past day, but it's also a glimpse of a future day of paradise regained, of a day when the breach that has caused separation between God and man is completely overturned. In the old covenant, we're getting glimpses of it slowly for sure from Genesis 3 on. But Hebrews is telling us that the tabernacle is not just pointing forward, it's pointing up. It says this is a copy of the throne room of God. So what we're getting here is just a brief preview of how God will ride away for us to come into that throne room. And yet, sadly, Israel, along with us, we're all sinners who left to ourselves can never make it back to Eden. And that is why this next piece of furniture is so important because it shows us how God provides a way. We come now to the bronze altar and we see that entrance to God's presence only comes from sacrifice. Verse 1, chapter 27 You shall make an altar of acacia wood, five cubits long, five cubits broad. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. You shall make it with horns for its corners. Its horns shall be of one piece. You shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes. This is for the burning of the sacrifice. You shall make its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for grating a network of bronze. And on the net, you shall make four bronze rings at the four corners. And you shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar. You shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put through the ring so the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with boards. As has been shown you on the mountain, so shall it be made. This piece is this massive altar. And it's a place of sacrifice. And it would be placed right inside the courtyard. It would be the first thing you see when you entered into the complex. I've been saying this along the way, but communion with God now requires sacrifice. And the first thing a worshiper would see in entering the tabernacle courtyard would be this massive altar that would dominate the entrance. It would be as wide as half of the tabernacle itself. It would be a vivid reminder that they only come before God through blood by a substitutionary sacrifice which made atonement for them or cleansed them of their transgressions and sins. This is important. It's important for us to understand sinners only come into the presence of God both by his gracious invitation but also his atonement of their sins. We're going to take the Lord's Supper in a minute and it is a reminder to us when we come to that table we are only welcome there because of blood sacrifice. And notice if you will the continuous mention of poles along the way with each element. This was to be a portable site and that reminds us of two things. Number one God's presence is not locked into a building. As wonderful as this new place is, God's presence is not locked into this building. And number two, he so identifies with his people that if they are mobile, so is he. As wherever they go, he will go. And at the end of this, after all of this is said and done, after they've done exactly what the Lord told them in dramatic fashion in Exodus 40, 17, it simply says this, one year after they had been delivered from Egypt, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. There's so much here. There's so many applications we could draw, but I want to just draw a few quick ones. As we think about who we are now in Christ, as we think about the truths of the tabernacle, that I think they should lead us to great comfort and confidence, to great communication, and to a great commission. Great comfort and confidence. God is with us. 
And God is with us. And this is why I didn't want to primarily relate the tabernacle to this new building. God is with us. Ephesians 2 is telling us this. And along with other places in the New Testament, God is building a new dwelling place. He's building a new temple. He's building a new tabernacle where his presence and his spirit dwell. And that is called the church, but it is a structure not made by bricks and stone. Instead, it is a structure that is made up of living stones. That's us. The biggest sign of blessing that Redeemer has is not this building as great as it is, as useful as it will be to the future ministry of this church. The greatest blessing you see is that God has set his affections upon you and you see that you have brothers and sisters in this family that he has done the same that you are linked to by faith. But this also should lead to great communication. Think on this most amazing and glorious truth. He dwells in us. In the old covenant, God's presence would only fall down on this tent and only once a year where only one person could go in. But now in the new covenant, we are welcomed into the tent with unhindered access. And yet it's even better than that because we are not just welcomed into the tent in the new covenant. We are the tent. The spirit of God is now living in us, is dwelling in us. This should lead us to faithful and fervent prayer for indeed, think about this, the privilege that was Moses alone in the old covenant where he would go and speak to God is now the the privilege of every single Christian. Everyone who has followed him by faith now has access to the creator of the universe who hears our prayers and responds to them. And then his presence should lead us to a great commission. If God is in the midst of us, what do we have to fear? There's a great parallel in the new covenant. Josh preached on some of this last week. In the new covenant, when the spirit falls, when the presence of God is among them, it immediately leads them in acts to this great commission work of evangelism and the starting and strengthening of churches all over the world. This new phase is not the end for Redeemer. It is the beginning of a new season of commitment so that others will know the one who has taken us out of darkness and brought us into great light. And what are the prospects for success? I love this letter from the great missionary Adoniram Judson. He wrote this to Luther Rice as Rice was trying to raise money for him to stay on the field. He simply said this, if they ask again, what prospect of ultimate success is there? Tell them, as much as there is that an almighty and faithful God who will perform his promises and no more. Finally, brothers and sisters, the tabernacle should push us to great contrition and to joyous celebration. Because here the tabernacle is pointing us to something much greater. Here as we think about what is taking place, we should come face to face with the appalling nature of our sin. The serious nature of our sin that has separated us from God, separated us from his love. That is, if we're not found in him, is sending us to a place that will lack any sense of his grace and kindness. But we cannot also come to this tent and not understand his love and mercy for sinners like us. The tabernacle is ultimately pointing us to the very God who would be pleased to dwell with us. The the furniture and the structure and the people of the tabernacle are showing us a glimpse of how to bring sinners into the presence of a holy God. But they are simply shadows pointing us to something much greater. 
For you see, there will be another portable presence of God who will take on flesh, where the fullness of God will be pleased to dwell bodily in a new and better temple. There will be another one who will come who will signify the provision of God, who will be called the bread of life. There will be another lampstand who will be called the light of the world. There will be another true altar whose sacrifice will make it possible for worshipers to come into the presence of a holy God. Hebrews tells us we have an altar from which those who serve this tent have no right to eat. There will be another ark of God who have the law inside of him written on his heart so much so that he will never sin, not even one idle word. An ark who himself is a mediator, who spills his own blood to redeem the sins of others. Ironically, at this place, this one will be abandoned by the presence of God. He will be abandoned by the presence of his father so that sinners like us can come back into the presence of our God. There's only one way to reconcile a holy God to sin. There's only one way truly for God and man to come back together. And that's because in the first century, the atonement seat is hung up on Calvary's hill. And in doing so, he is upholding the holiness of God because he is holy, but he is also dealing with the sinfulness of man because he is a man himself. He has become like us in every single way. That is why Paul can tell the church at Rome that God has become both just and the justifier of the one who has faith. There will be another curtain. There will be another veil. Hebrews says, it's his body. And on that day when the holiness and mercy of God meet, as he takes in his own body the wrath due our sins, on that day when he dies on the cross, Matthew tells us that when his body is torn and his spirit is given up, it says, so is that veil. That veil that had separated God and man in the most holy place, it is completely torn in two from top to bottom, giving sinful man access back into the presence of God. And then in his grace, the cherubim show back up. Think about what our sister Mary sees on that first Sunday. She walks in. She looks into the tomb and she sees a slab that is covered in blood. And interestingly, just like the top of the Ark of the Covenant... She sees an angel at the foot, and she sees an angel at the head looking at each other. She sees where the true mercy seat had been. And now these angels, instead of blocking access to God, are welcoming our sister back in because the precious blood has been applied. New Testament tells us because of his work, we have confidence to enter into the holy place by his blood, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, all made possible by the true ark, the true light, the true bread, the better altar, the greater sacrifice. Jesus of Nazareth, whom John says, is the word of God who has become flesh and literally tabernacled among us and we have beheld his glory, glories of the only son begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. That's what we celebrate in this season. That's what we celebrate in the Advent season, the tabernacling presence of our Lord. And so I want to move to close with this quote from the great Baptist preacher R.G. Lee on the incarnation. Because it gets at not just why he came, but what he came to do. It says this, Christ who in eternity rested motherless upon the Father's bosom. And in time rested fatherless upon a woman's bosom. Clasping the ancient of days who had become the infant of days. 
What deep descent from the heights of glory to the depths of shame, from the wonders of heaven to the wickedness of earth, from exaltation to humiliation, from the throne to the tree, from dignity to debasement, from worship to wrath, from the halls of heaven to the nails of earth, from the coronation to the curse, from the glory place to the gory place. Listen to this. In Bethlehem, humility and glory in their extremes were joined, born in a stable, cradled in a cattle trough, wrapped in swaddling clothes of poverty, no room for him who made all rooms, no place for him who made and knows all places. The deep humiliation of the creator, born of the creature woman. But in his descent was the dawn of mercy. Because we cannot ascend to him, he descends to us. No wonder Queen Lucy would say in the last battle of the Chronicles of Narnia, yes, in our world too, a stable once had something inside it. That was bigger than our whole world. The reason for the season is not just the babe in the manger. We understand the babe in the manger was born for the knife. The child wrapped in swaddling clothes at his birth would be wrapped in strips of burial cloth at his death. But think about where he's taking us and where this tabernacle is finally pointing us. John tells us in Revelation a scene that gives us a glimpse of the future tabernacling of our God. And it simply says this, behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. I saw no temple in the city for the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine up for the glory of God gives it light. And listen to this, and its lamp is the Lamb. Night will be no more. They will not need lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, in a fallen world, one of the most unspeakably glorious truths about God's presence is simply this. At our death, his presence will not become less. In fact, it will become all the more apparent as we will see it with unveiled faces. Brothers and sisters, God ultimately will not dwell with a sinful people, but that's not because he has found a sinless one because he has set his affections upon sinners and made them sinless through his own righteousness and he has done so by blood. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you don't know him. Maybe you're here because it's a Christmas season. You've been around the church much of your life, but you don't really believe this. We want to extend to you the most important thing we can this morning and that is simply Jesus. There is a way to be made right with God. There is a way to be part of his people. There's a way to enjoy his presence forever. And that is simply by admitting you're a sinner, confessing your sins, falling before the Lord Jesus and saying, would you please save me and become my Lord? You know, I had such a different experience than the girl I mentioned at the beginning. I had parents who were there. Remember on 9-11, I was a freshman in college. I was away from home for the first time. And I just remember the uncertainty of that day. If I can just hear my dad's voice, I'll know everything's okay. My mom did not have that. In fact, not only would her father not come to see her at the children's home, he would not even come to her wedding. You want to know what my mom's favorite aspect of the gospel is? It's not her forgiveness, as sweet as that is. It's her adoption. The fact that our heavenly father, through Christ, has made her his own. And she is comforted by the fact that he will never leave her nor forsake her. 
Brothers and sisters, we have an altogether different kind of father who has shown us his love, who has shown us his comforting presence, and he has done so climactically in the person and work of his son. And he has promised to be with us even through death itself. So Redeemer Church, know that God's presence among you is a sign of his blessing. And that is not first and foremost because of the walls that we see here, the bricks and stones that make up this building, but it's because the living stones that are seated next to you who you are bound to because blood has been applied. God is with you. Now it's time to get to work. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, your word is very clear in the Psalms that Yahweh sits enthroned upon the cherubim. He is great. He is to be exalted over all the peoples. Father, my prayer for Redeemer is that these past 15 years of blessing would lead to another 150. Father, you would use this place, but more than that, you would use these people for your purposes in the world. Father, even as we recognize your blessing in the new building, may we also remember, as Paul tells the church in Corinth, that you have entrusted this treasure to jars of clay to show that the surpassing power is yours. Father, would you use us, limited vessels, but Father, may we be used for honorable use. Father, we desire your glory, so we need your help. Father, now today and in the days ahead, would you do a thousand miracles among this people, miracles of salvation and miracles of sanctification. The Lord Jesus is worth it. Father, would you use this people to make much of him? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.